Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Our guest today is Jason Yang, COO of Dialpad. Jason joined Dialpad in 2018 and was previously SVP of Marketing and Business Operations. He brings to the role more than two decades of experience with high growth global companies and a wide breadth of experience across disciplines. Jason is a global marketing and digital transformation leader with experience in successfully delivering against complex and challenging business objectives. Adept at strategy, technology, and people to drive demand, fuel business growth, and build great brands. Jason acquired broad industry experience across SaaS, financial services, brand management, healthcare, and consulting. He's strong analytical expertise and mindset for database decision-making. Jason is recognized as a top leader and coach that builds high-performing teams. Previously, Jason held leadership roles at Five9 and Charles Schwab. So Jason, welcome to the Second Command Podcast. Thanks, Cameron. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, looking forward to it. So curious what it was for you that had you see Dialpad as your kind of next step, because you've been there now for a few years. What was it originally that that grabbed your attention? Yeah, um, I, I was in the industry, I would say is the first foremost thing. And I was at Five9. We were in the contact center industry. And um, what grabbed my attention was uh, they had a better, they had an awesome product, you know, that was just built for the cloud. It was built for a modern workforce. And um, I could see where it had the potential. Um, and, and when I met with um, the CEO there, um, we had a great breakfast, you know, which is sort of how these things get done. And we just talked a lot about the future and what it could be. And I, I just really bought into it. And um, I just felt like this is a company that had a lot of, a lot of potential. And, and more importantly, I thought I could actually make an impact there, you know, with the experience that I had. So um, I was excited to, to jump at the opportunity. Awesome. All right. I'm going to come back to that in a second, but I want to go backwards into your career a little bit then and talk about the, the contact center business. So contact centers or call centers, those are tough industries to be involved in. There's a lot of people, a lot of moving parts, a lot of technology, staffing issues. What are some of the big lessons you pulled from that? And, and, and how big was 5.9 when you were working there? Uh. Five nine was roughly three hundred million in in valuation uh, when I joined, and and when I left, it was two point one billion, something like that. Um, it was uh, you're right; it is a complicated industry. There's there is a ton of, I'll call it upfront stakes, right? Telephony is really hard, and um, it, in fact, it's so hard that not a lot of people want to get into it. And to do it well and do it reliably and do it with uh, you know high level of um, serviceability, like four nines, five nines, six nines, uh, it's a difficult thing to do. So um, to your point, it is complicated and related to that, there's all these other things you have to get right. You have to turn that, turn that telephony that you've built into a servicing process, you know, so that other orgs can make better decisions. Um, you got to turn it into uh, a reliable process so that people in, in, within a company can actually make their own changes and be empowered to move nimbly and operate their business. You got to give them intelligence about data and, you know, what is the kind of, um, what, are, what are the kind of questions coming to the call center? How do you pivot quickly to, to, you know, make a change so that you can improve your service response. 
and, and not have a massive call spike and, you know, hundreds of frustrated customers on the line. And then there's things like, you know, standing up a call center is a, t- is a tough thing. And sometimes you got to do it quickly. And sometimes you got to do it in a way that impacts hundreds, if not thousands of people. So there's a whole art, you know, to that process and the way you roll it out, the way you, you um, install it and uh, displace maybe an incumbent PBX system. Like those are complicated issues. So in, in terms of them being so complicated, we, I had to, one of the divisions I ran at 1-800-GOT-JUNK was our call center at one point. And, and that was exactly what baffled me was all the telephony sides of it. The people stuff was easy for me, but all the equipment and switches and everything, that was just at my eyes. I don't know. I still don't understand it. How the hell did all these businesses that have contact centers or that were contact centers, how did they make this, this pivot or with COVID, like to have to actually run these things from home, like what the hell did they do? And is that going to impact that entire industry going forward? Do you think? Yeah, I, I would say like a hundred percent. I think COVID really accelerated the adoption of the cloud-based contact center or cloud-based telephony communication mm-hmm. platform by about 10 years. Yeah. It's, it's it like almost overnight, right? Like people could not run their businesses and they had to find alternate ways, sometimes hybrid ways, sometimes hybrid moving to the cloud 100%, just to provide service and have employees that can work from anywhere now, who expect to be able to work from any device, uh, anywhere with reliability. And then on top of that, not just providing the technology, which is no longer like a hard wire to a, a phone or a computer at a physical desk. Now you have to be able to provide the training, right? Yeah. And how you train and hire and grow in an environment where um, you, I've literally in our company, we've hired a couple hundred people, uh, in the last few months and none of them have ever met face to face, you know? And I think now with the, you know, vaccine rolling out, like all of that's going to change pretty soon. But like, we've literally had a whole year where we've had hundreds of new hires. We've never met anybody. And we're a great example of a work from home, uh, DNA kind of culture where we did not miss a beat. Um, I think a lot of companies are like us. They hit that they hit that accelerator and they realized they could shift to working remotely. And then people realized it's, it wasn't so bad, right? I think that maybe there's initially a little bit of fear. Yeah. Um, would people be as productive? I would argue most people have worked longer hours and they're more productive um, to the point now where, you know, companies are thinking about how do we, how do we rebalance the other way? And um, is that whole shift uh, has just been transforming, you know, in this, in this environment of the pandemic and, um, Dialpad has really been able to participate in that. And, you know, one of the things that we did, um, just to toot our home for a second is early on, we, we gave away the product at the beginning of the pandemic. We just said, if you need it, come use it. Um, and we gave it away to 500 customers or 500 people, businesses who just came and signed up. It was unlimited, all you can use. And just to be helpful to the world. And I would say a vast majority of those are still our customers today. You know, as a testament to, you know, trying to do the right thing, but also like doing the right thing sometimes reaps good business results. Yeah. Um, we're, we're really happy to see that, you know, they continued with us. Yeah, I'm going to ask about, about Dialpad and start diving in there in a second. I'm, I'm, I think you're right in saying that, that I think this change with COVID moved these call centers and contact centers ahead by 10 years, because I don't think any of them would have ever thought it was possible or or that they ever would have wanted to move remote. Like it would, because they're so stuck in, you know, just add add the next, you know, 100,000 square feet, right? Add the next teams of, of people. And um, it's it's pretty extraordinary. Where did they struggle? Where did that industry struggle? 
was it onboarding of people? Was it finding new technology that could work in the cloud? Yeah. What was it? I, I think, you know, honestly, I'll give you my, my personal take on it, which is there is, we were already in the beginning of a transition from um, a, a PBX platform to a cloud platform in, in most cases. And a lot of times you had new leaders coming in who maybe had seen some of the newer technologies and, and could see the value of it, but they always ran into the, um, the physical limitations of the on-premise system, right? And having to flex to accommodate some existing legacy um, connector or, or something that like they had, they just had to have like to keep part of their business running. And there's just a lot of inertia to these kinds of chain, uh, changes. So like typically, you know, when you have infinite time, like the rotational cycle for uh, your contact center platform might be about seven years. You know, you might buy a platform and keep it for seven years. Yeah. Um, the pandemic just changed that completely, right? So overnight, you had to either make do with what you had or figure out a better way. And um, I think most people moved to figuring out a better way. And they just had to do that to keep their businesses running. And it's a little bit of like dipping your toe in the water. Once you realize that the world is not riskier on the other side, that actually you could see change and be more efficient and your IT team could um, basically remote manage everything from, from anywhere. Yep, yep. Um, it's pretty transforming and it's, yeah. it's freeing and it, it creates a lot of conversations about, well, there really isn't that big bad downside. And so now looking forward, like what, what is the, what is the best way to do this? We now have a workforce that works from anywhere. We probably hired in many other geos um, because we've been able to hire from anywhere. Yeah. And, and there's even some like geo arbitrage kind of things happening. So when you, when you factor all that in together, you gotta be prepared for a modern workforce. And um, part of that is giving them all the right tools. You know, all right. To do that. So, right. so talk about the tool. What is, what is Dialpad? What do you guys do as a company? Cause I think this is the timing for you guys with COVID has probably been quite strong as well. Yeah, for, for sure. So it's really, that's pretty simple. It's a business communications platform. Um, it's all based in the cloud and it does everything from conferencing to contact center. And um, it's just one platform that has phone, video, messaging, and then we layer real-time artificial intelligence across all of that. Um, so that just helps you make better decisions. It helps you mine your data. It helps you take meeting notes. Um, so, so basically that's what it is. And if, uh, it's great for, you know, if you're a modern business looking for a modern platform to work from anywhere, like this is the thing that helps you do it. And it helps you spin it up for any employee you have anywhere in the world. So who are your, who are your customers? What's your customer demo? You know, we, we do a ton of business, um, actually in, in most of the segments, uh, um, historically, uh, a lot of SMB and mid-market and increasingly so now upstream into enterprise. Um, many customers, you know, over over a million dollars in terms of, you know, deal size. Um, really just, we've seen expansion, you know, across all segments. And I think that's um, that's really just because the use cases, you know, they, they tend to be pretty similar. Like people are, are looking for ease. They're looking for um, a good user experience. They're looking for the intelligence that AI can provide. And all of those resonate um, with every segment, um, maybe in different ways in some, uh, but, um, but definitely they have value. So I think that when people look at the product and they, and they get a demo, they're like, wow, this is, this is pretty cool. So we, we do participate in all of them. And has there been, has there been one niche that um, maybe has adopted this more now because of COVID? Was that something that was kind of unexpected for you or... Um, you know, I would say, I would say there hasn't been like one particular sector or, 
um, area that, that has, you know, uh, like by a factor of 10 or anything like that expanded. Um, I, we saw a pretty good rising tide lift uh, across the entire business uh, as a result of COVID. Um, and it came at different times, right? Like at the beginning of the pandemic, business sort of slowed down a little bit. And then um, some businesses picked up faster than others. Uh, but everything is pretty much um, has been rebounding and, and has now we're seeing just good traction um, everywhere. And, and I would say probably, you know, one of the things that we've really been able to, to nail is um, you may have seen recently our partnership with T-Mobile. And, you know, that's been really good validation of having a, like a modern solution that works. And um, that's very focused on the mid-market enterprise segment. And um, we're, you know, we're really proud of that because it's, it's a, it's like, it's a third party coming to say that we have um, a really solid product uh, that they mm -hmm. want to have as part of their T-Mobile Collaborate. Um, and uh, they've been working with us for some time, um, participated in our round, um, uh, participated in our recent funding round. And, you know, we've just really been able to get um, good traction, you know, with them and a lot of interest. Uh, from from seeing that, so we think that that mid market enterprise space is is really you know optimal for us. So you just raised another hundred plus million recently. Absolutely, yeah, hundred I think one hundred twenty six. And when was the round before that? Uh, it was uh, fifty. I want to say about fifty million. When was that one? I think it was about three years ago. So just before you got there. Just before I got there. So yeah. did anything change in the, in the time from when you got there to this recent round coming through, or is it just business as usual, or is this going to accelerate things? What's, what's changing with this kind of a big round that's coming in? Yeah. So this, this recent round is um, obviously when you get more, more funding, right? You want to deploy it in smart ways for growth. Um, it, it really did help to give us the fuel we wanted to grow. Um, I would say, Three years ago, you know, the company was trying to figure out or in the process of figuring out, like, what is the right motion, right? What is the right recipe for success? Like, how do you go to market? What's your pitch? How do you sell? How do you, you know, how do you service? And once we had figured that out, I almost imagine that being the analogy of like this, you figure out how to make a little flame, um, like a little tiny fire, right? And once you know how to make that flame, then it's just about scaling it and pouring gas on it to grow as fast as possible. And I, I think that's where we're really at right now. Um, we figured out the recipe and it, it wasn't super easy. Like we had some iterations and, you know, we can get into some of the ups and downs of that. But um, once we figured it out, it was just about like, well, how do we, how do we resource this, right? How do we grow? And, and what you're seeing is we've, we've had massive hiring. I think at the end of this year, we'll be, um, we're, we're over, 800, over 800 employees now. At the end of this year, we'll be over a thousand. And how many were there when you? How many were there when you got there? Um, I was number three sixty-five, so like pretty significant growth. And um, but it wasn't a small company when you got there. Three hundred sixty-five. No, no, it was, it was still uh, big was enough great. with the leadership team. And so, so you came into a solid seasoned leadership team, and then now you're in the COO role. What was it that that brought you into that role? Do you think? How did you excel and and kind of get to that role? Yeah. So this is. Um, I'm a first time COO, right? And I've been in the role for three months, uh, more or less, but I've actually been in the responsibility set for much longer than that. So we've made, we made it official. 
Um, but I would say that the problems I've, I've been solving haven't, you know, haven't changed, you know, from before and after getting the, getting the title. Um, and coming into that team, you know, I, probably the thing for me was I, I started as the, as the demand gen leader, right. And quickly moved to take on all of operations as well. And, um, just generally caught all the toss-ups for, uh, a lot of the, how do we solve these kinds of amorphous problems and doing so gets you this exposure to the company where you're just contributing, like in, in every department and everywhere. Yeah, were you, were you putting your hand up and saying, yeah, I'll take that. Yeah, I'll take that. Is that kind of what happened or was it being tossed on your plate? No, I was, I was, uh, I was volunteering. Some of it was being voluntold, but, but mostly volunteering. Um, I'm, I, I love to solve problems, you know, and, um, this is a role that I, I had, I had known, like I never, ex- I wasn't like expecting the role. I, I think like we had talked about it, but it, even back then in the infancy of the company, I don't think we were even sure we would ever need a COO. And, um, that was fine. Like I didn't, the title didn't matter. It was more like, this is what we need to be successful. Let's go solve these problems. And just by getting the breadth of experience, I think that's sort of what set me up personally to, to be in this position where we came to the realization that, Hey, um, you know, I think you subscribe maybe to the, I don't know if you follow the HBR articles about the different types of COOs. Yep. The misunderstanding um, of all the COO for sure. If I had to break myself down, I'd say, you know, I'm, MVP. I'm, I'm part, no, I'm part executor and then part, um, the other half. And, um, and it's really about how you compliment your, your CEO, right? So our CEO's amazing guy, brilliant, and he's super product focused. And I am, I'm super good at the details, man. I just come in and I crush the details to run the business. I wonder if and, you, I wonder if you're similar to Harley Finkelstein. Do you know Harley from Shopify? I, I, don't, I haven't met him, no. So Harley was demand gen, biz dev, sales marketing, and Tobias Luke, who was the CEO, was product and engineering focused. And um, it's interesting. You guys may be very similar in that kind of kind of role as well. It's. I think you're right that the the visibility of demand gen and being there on the revenue side probably got you noticed inside the business. And then what got you respected was taking all these projects, taking all these initiatives, and being able to do them and solve the problems. And then. How about with the CEO? Do you what's your relationship like with him? And, uh, and we have a, we have a great relationship. Um, and, and how do you work on that? Like, is it is it always easy every day, or have there been struggles with that? Or well, I mean, I would say generally, generally, it's not I don't, easy. Is probably not the right word. Where it's not you know work is work, right? So you're all trying to solve problems. You have the best interests at heart, but sometimes there are direct, brutally honest conversations, and I think that's part of having a good working relationship is to be able to have those conversations. So um, I respect the hell out of the guy. I love the guy. He's my friend. Um, His name is Craig Walker. Uh, I was at his house for dinner, you know, uh, a couple of nights ago. So um, we get along great. And when we need to have an upfront conversation, we will. And it's pretty direct. And that's, that's what I really value about it. And is that why you can have the upfront, you know, conversations is because you have that underlying trust and respect for each other, like Jim Collins and, or uh, sorry, Pat Lencioni in the five dysfunctions of a team talks about that fear of conflict and the absence of trust. It sounds like you're, you guys have a good, healthy respect on both of those areas. Yeah. A hundred percent. Like we would not function if, if we didn't have that level of trust and respect for each other, you, you have to, you can't have, you know, you want, you don't want your comments to be couched and sort of like, Hey, what is What is that person really thinking? Or like, what's the, um, what's the question behind the question? Like, it's just black and white. Like, 
just state it how it is and we'll agree, disagree, discuss, and then we'll move on. And we both have that mutually. So that's why we can shortcut a lot of things because you, you actually don't have to worry about some of the, the chat. Is the company changing right now because of this last raise or is the company changing at all because of some of the big growth, you know, from 365 people to pushing to the thousand? Is it starting to change now or? Um, I mean, we're still a startup. Uh, it's, it still feels like you can throw spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks. But I think if, if I had a charter, it would be to do that in a much more predictable and scalable way and, um, and, and do it in a way that can still fuel hyper growth, but without any like waste, you know? So it's funny, like, you, if, just, it's funny you just mentioned the throwing spaghetti against the wall. I just showed my 17 year old how to do that the other day and he thought I was crazy, but I'm like, that's how you know it's done. You toss one against the wall. If it sticks, it's ready. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a business, you know, and you, you still need to have the, the DNA to be, take a little risk and do some testing and try new things. Um, I think there's very little red tape. You know, I, I, if you look at my resume, I've worked at some pretty big companies and you could, I can tell you there's, there's more red tape there for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, we pride ourselves in just being light and nimble. And I think that's part of our competitive advantage. And so we try really hard, you know, to keep that going. And um, so to your point, have, have things changed other than adding, you know, huge numbers of employees and being able to do a lot more? Uh, yeah, we're trying to be a little more formal, right? We're trying to be a little more structured. Um, when, you, when you have bigger budgets, you're trying to deal with, you know, better reconciliation of, of where your investment went and what the ROI was and just, just trying to be more buttoned up in general. So, the, um, and were you guys all based in the Bay Area or before COVID? No, we are, we've always had offices um, globally, but uh, the Bay Area was, was the headquarters. We have a huge office in Austin. Um, we have also offices in, in Canada and in, in Kitchener. Um, and then we have presences in Japan. We have a big office in Japan and we have people in Australia and EMEA. So we're, we're, we're pretty much all over um, and just continuing to, to expand. Okay. Yeah. Interesting that you, um, is Mia Middle East and Asia or is what's Mia? I mean, uh, Europe, sorry. I, oh. when I say to me, I mean, I mean Europe. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. Interesting about, uh, about Kitchener. Kitchener was that the kind of hotbed from research in motion from where Blackberry blew up. So is that you just hiring everybody out of, uh, the university of Waterloo? Is that why, or is yeah. or was it an acquisition or what happened there? Um, no, no, it wasn't an acquisition. It was, Kitchener was a, a search for talent and um, a search for talent in a place that no one else had yet gone to. And um, we, we actually tried a few places, but Kitchener turned out to have, you know, it's, I'll, now that I'm sharing this on the podcast, it won't be a secret anymore, but um, great people, uh, good talent. And we've been really happy with the ability to hire from there and because they can work from anywhere. It worked out for us. Um, well, the, the cost of living there is half what it is in the Bay Area. So you can pay people and they can have a great lifestyle and you've locked them in, right? That's right. That's yeah. right. Have you been to Kitchener in the winter though? I have not yet been. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, that is on the list. Don't rush up there in the winter. Go in the summertime. I, I grew up north of there, so don't rush in the winter. How about the, um, the ups and downs for you in, in terms of the, the company? What, what are some of the ups and downs that you've had to go through? Well, I guess maybe like the worst thing is as you start to, I was talking about finding that flame in the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. And so the recipe to find that flame, it's a little different, but you try, you try different stuff. And 
Um, the low point for me was probably, I don't know, a little over two years ago. Like we, we had, um, we had a reduction in force, right? And, and that was because we had tried a bunch of different motions. They didn't work. We got to the point where we wanted to knuckle down on our finances and make sure that we were going to be able to scale the parts of the company that were doing great. And that just resulted in, um, in a riff. And those are very unfortunate, as you can imagine, because they impact people's lives, they impact people's families, and, and, and no one likes doing them. So that was, that was probably the low, the low point. But we did come out of that. And I would say, I'll just share a quick story. Like we came out of that probably faster than you'd think. And our very next quarter was a record quarter, um, followed by another one, you know, you know, just from the focus. So if there is ever a, a case study for being focused, like that was it. That gets you there for sure. So what, what were some of the lessons you learned from doing that? And how would you have done it differently? And, and um, what do you think you did well in doing the reduction of force that worked well? Oh, gosh. Um, There's a lot of people out there that have maybe ha- never had to do it. What would they do? Yeah, I, I would say like, I, I don't know if there's anything I would do differently, um, except maybe the, the maybe a little better planning that, you know, well before that happened to maybe not get to that point. But, but the actual way it happened, I think, was super respectful, super um, humane and, you know, recognition. These are colleagues. They're not, not, they're not numbers. And um, it was just one coordinated effort across the company. And it was a very short-term, high-action sort of uh, motion, followed by immediate um, sort of, like, group discussion and just, like, we're a family, like that's all, you know, hold walk, together. Walk us through that. Like, let's say that somebody's going to have to do a 50 person or 150 person layoff. What do they do? How do they talk about it? How do you socialize it? You know, what's just, how do you deal with survivors? Give us some yeah. of that. That's rarely talked about. I've had to do it a couple of times, but I'd love to hear how you did it. Yeah. So I would say like, maybe the, the first thing is you got to decide how you're going to do it. Right. So, or, or where it's going to be. And, and for us, it was, we knew we had um, we had a business area that probably was not going to make the cut, and then there are like a sort of like a, a fleet of battleships. Like if you have your your main, you know, battle, you have your battleship, then you have all the supporting frigates and stuff around it. Like then you're like, well, if that's not making the cut, like how do you? What do we actually need to support that, or what did that? What supported it? And then you sort of go out from there, um, and then um, that's how you sort of arrive at like where it should be. Um, but then within that, like, it's not like you're, you always have to make trade-offs on teams, right? Sometimes if you have a team of 10 and they go to five, um, or two or eight, whatever the number is, you have to make choices about who to, who, who to retain and who to, who to stay. Um, those are frankly, very objective decisions based on performance, um, based on, you know, past contribution. Um, and I would say in my mind, the one thing I could say is like, if you were a strong employee um that had always sort of like gone the extra mile and had um i would say more all-around athlete would also be a good good one like role player like you probably if in fact if that's you today i will tell the listeners like you probably don't have to worry because those people are always valued right like we'll find somewhere for you right that's right and um so at the end at the end of the day like you end up with a list you know and and then that list um, it's all about sort of like, all, how many people were there? Um, 
gosh, at that time, I think we must have maybe like 50. Okay. And did you do it all at once? Do you bring them all down to the lunchroom and hand them all Kool-Aid or do you give them a letter or do you do it one at a time or what did you do? Yeah, it was, uh, it was all, all at once, but it wasn't down at the, uh, it wasn't one big meeting. It was one morning. There was one really active morning where for a couple hours, it was, it was just, you know, one meeting after another. Um, and if there's no way to do it comfortably, but I think when you, when you do do it, like that's maybe the most humane. I think that I think doing it in a lunchroom is probably the worst and, and least humane way of, of ever communicating that kind of message. Yeah, we had we had to do it. We had 900 employees back in 2000, right as the, as the Nasdaq was starting to crash, and we had to fire 150 people, and we we had to send them all down from four buildings down to our head office in Seattle, and we fired 150 people all at once. And I remember one of the girls at our office was like, "Why do I not get to go to the meeting?" I'm like, "Shut up, <laughs> sit down." Like, I she's like, "I want to go." I'm like, "You do not want to go to this meeting. Trust me." Like, just. Yeah. So, what about the survivors? What do you tell the people that were not laid off? How do you communicate that stuff? Well, first you tell them thank you, right? Thank you for, for having been part of the company and you're still part of the company. And the reason you're still here is because we believe you're going to help the company grow and we appreciate everything you've done. Um, we being, you know, I guess the management team, but like, um, I think it's important to say like, there's not, there's two things like, A, there's not another issue about the drop because I think that really people, that weighs on people's minds, right? Yep. Like. Yeah, they're waiting for the aftershock, right? The tremors. Yeah. You got, I think one of the things we did well to answer your question was like, we, we made sure there was no aftershock. Like we were super clear that today sucked yeah, and that's the end of it. Yeah. And tomorrow, like we're all going to get up and we're going to, we're going to do better, you know, together. And I think that really helps um, for anyone who's going through this situation, like just be really clear and, um, and just be honest, you know, with people like you, you don't have to beat around the bush. Like people, people understand. If we think about the, the people that are left and the people that you've gone through the communication, the discussion with them, and then now you're going to kind of rebuild that team. Do you, do you realign them with new goals? Do you realign them with a new vision? Like how, how can you quickly move away from that rift and now move into the future again? What do you do there? So you uh, thank them and let them know there's nothing else. Do you then, do you then flip the gears and now let's drive forward or, or what happened? Yeah, I think so. Hundred percent. Like, if you're going to make a change like that, you have to, you have to have clear marching orders coming out of that. If if only to keep the company focused, right? And I think a lot of it is, um, you know, honestly, anytime something like that happens, there's a little bit of like, hey, figure out where the balls are dropping because you can't account for everything. And so there's some some of the some of it's picking up pieces, um, but a lot of it is like. In our case, I told you we were we were refocusing right on, on parts of the business, so it was like really clear. Like it wasn't it wasn't even um, it wasn't so much like picking up pieces. More like cool. Now we're going to focus on this. Like let's all go focus on that. Mm. And so I didn't. We didn't have the. Um, I don't know if you're imagining there being like you know a lot of gotchas or unexpected it's like there wasn't like it, wasn't, we, right. it was just to refocus and it gave us the capacity to do so yeah okay so now your role day-to-day what's your day-to-day that you're involved in now what's your leadership team makeup look like um i guess I, i'm i'm involved in um honestly like i'm i'm involved in most things um a lot of things from a consultative uh, perspective and some things from a you know direct decision maker perspective but my team is is all of revenue operations 
um, which in our world is typically, you might call them sales and marketing operations combined at, at other places. Um, it's our data analytics team, which does all of the preparation for our financial reporting, um, as well as e even our product um, feature reporting and utilization sort of things. Um, uh, I've also got um, our international uh, offices report to me. Uh, and, um, and just recently uh, expanded scope to include the customer support organization. You got a lot on your plate. Uh, I do, <laughs> but you know, I, it doesn't feel that way. You know, it, it, uh, I mean, it, if you felt like, I know you probably hear this a lot, but if you felt like your job was work, then it, right. I'm going to have enough fun. Right. But so how do you prevent yourself from getting pulled into the minutiae or getting pulled into, you know, areas that maybe you're competent at or could do, but you don't have time for, or shouldn't be doing like, how do you, how do you prevent yourself from doing the hundred hour weeks, which I think is a skill that a lot of them maybe earlier stage COOs haven't quite figured out yet. Yeah. I would say that there's a couple of things which I'll, I'll answer you on. One is you need to have a good bench. So you need a, you need a leadership team, right. That you can rely on and trust so you can um, push decision-making downwards. And that's just going to help everyone. Oh, I lost your audio. Can you still hear me? Yeah, I got you. Okay. So that, you know, you got to have your good bench, right? So you can push decisions down. Um, the second thing is, I, and this is a, something I like to do. I like to, I more ask questions, like rather than be the decider all the time, which people can really get in the habit of like coming to, Hey, what do you think about this? Like, or can I have your permission to do that? Um, really with like, Hey, what do you think? Why do you believe that? And I might, I might, as a trick, I, I often do that with, um, especially people I haven't worked with in the, in the past. And I'll, I'll sort of see their thinking and their decision-making process. And assuming like we're on the same page, then, you know, often I'll say like, hey, listen, um, for these kinds of things, you decide. Let me know if there's any exceptions. Um, and, and I might add something like, listen, uh, you're not going to get it right 100% of the time, but if you get it right 99 out of 100, that's good enough. And then we'll talk about the one. But that's better than you asking for approval 100 times in a row, right? So how did you how did you learn that or develop that skill because that's a skill that a lot of leaders if they don't if they if they don't develop that skill they never scale um I, and it's almost like you kind of are i don't even know if you're valuing how important that one really is or maybe you are yeah um i'm important i i think i've it's for me, it was always a little intuitive, I think, to, to do that. Um, so maybe not a trained thing, but what I will tell you, and, and I don't know if this has influenced that, but over the course of my life, I've, I've really subscribed to some leadership trainings that I, I really like a lot. So one of them is situational leadership. And that's probably my favorite one. I've, I've even taken it actually three times, just at different points in my career as, as like refreshers. Yep. And I, I asked that every one of my leaders take it um, if, so that we can speak a common language. And I think that really helps. And maybe some of the, um, the questions that I ask came from, probably came from some of that. Um, and, and the other part is just pure survival. Like at some point you look up and you're like, okay, I can't, I can't be the responder to everything. I can't answer everything. So how do I do this differently? And you try, maybe try it once as an experiment and it works. So like, then you can, you know, sort of keep, keep cascading it forward. And eventually, um, 
I think eventually it just sort of becomes part of your, your management style. And yep. um, for me, that's, that's sort of how it's, it's become, but um, it, it did, it always felt more natural that way. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you situational leadership is I believe the core executive functioning skill. Um, I actually just launched a course called invest in your leaders, which is all about growing the leadership team and management team skills. And of the 12 modules, the first of the 12 modules is situational leadership. But I actually did a, an entrepreneurial version of it where instead of how I tried to simplify, cause I like you have done, you know, days of training on this stuff. I tried to simplify it in a way so that more entrepreneurial, you can use it in a much more entrepreneurial, faster fashion than the traditional model of situational leadership. But yeah, Dr. Paul Hersey and Ken Blanchard crushed it with that whole model. And, you know, the one yeah. minute manager, even though it's 40 years old, is still probably one of the best management books of all time. Yeah, it's absolutely. It's Do you, were you raised by parents who had you figure it out for yourself versus telling, you know, giving you the answer or, you know, doing everything for you? Oh, that's a, that's a deep question. Um, like mom, can you do this? Did your mom do it or did she get you to do it? Uh, I would say half and half. Like half I, and half? I think like they didn't go out of their way. So I'll tell you a little story. Like, I don't think they, they didn't go out of their way to encourage me to go um, learn for myself. But what they did do was tell teach me to survive, I guess. They're like, Hey, this is the world. Like you need to know how to do stuff. Right. And, um, you know, if I, if I, I give an example, if I was trying to like fix something on a, on a bicycle, my dad, who's an engineer would probably just teach me how to do it. Right. He's not going to be like, go figure out how to install the pedal. Right. Okay. Um, he, he wouldn't, he would view that as a waste of time. Uh, like him not showing me cause, and, um, but I learned from, from that sort of insular childhood when I, from the time I entered the, the workforce, I learned very quickly that like, um, in my personal self, I probably had some gaps and, uh, and I wish that I maybe had had a little bit more of the whole, like, go figure out yourself, uh, early on in my life. And I, and I, but I, I had the, I was pretty self-aware, I think. And so I made it a conscious choice to, um, to always sort of figure stuff out for myself. And that really was, um, and also, also to track things too. Like I'm a big, spreadsheet kind of guy I track everything in my life and I just have goals and if, if you have a goal and you and you can figure out stuff for yourself then you, and you have the power of Google which by the way is has been has been awesome right like you can mm -hmm. learn anything so there's really nothing that I can't I don't believe there's not you know there's nothing I can't figure out or at least know enough about to have like a reasonable conversation to determine it's I'm not co competent at something and I need a better better source of uh, help but um, that very much is part of my, my DNA. And um, I, will, I will often probably go the extra mile to do a little research because I, I do want to know personally. And I, I'm, I'm less, probably a, more than your average bear, I'm less reliant on just taking you know, the face value of, of any fact like sort of given to me. Yeah, you've mentioned the use of data a number of times. How do you use data in your day-to-day -day and how do you get your teams to, to look at the data? Well, um, gosh, we use it every day just to run the business. But um, from a from a scalability perspective, one thing I learned early on is no one wants to sit there and crunch the same numbers every day. And so, one of the um, I think boons for running a business in this modern world is if you have access to something like Domo um, or Tableau and a and a 
business, uh, like a, a data team that can actually do Python scripting and run it out of like something like a BigQuery. Um, so where you're actually using it to do real-time data reporting and not just like as a mask for your, whatever was in your Excel spreadsheet. Um, when you have real-time results like that, it just saves you hours every day. And those hours add up over the course of a year to just real, you know, real product, product, uh, productive time that you would have spent just going through rote processes and then also not being able to share that analysis with other people and also not having a, a source of truth, right? So one of the best things that I think we, we did uh, at Dialpad was we created a source of truth for like, these are literally the sales results. These are the, this is the ARR, this is the churn. There's no other subjective reporting. There's no additional filter your team wants to put on it because of, you know, some special, you know, weird circumstance, like these are the numbers and um, getting everyone to buy into those, uh, into the foundation of it, that it was all coming from objective data uh, and having them understand how it was built. Once we got past that, like it was awesome because now we just have conversations about this is the data, these are the results, what are we going to do about it? And not do we believe the results, which often is like a vicious cycle of like, well, if you don't believe in these numbers, then what, what do we believe in? What do we like, believe in? Yeah. You can't, you can't move forward. Talk about the T-Mobile um, deal that you did and, and what you learned as an organization from working with T-Mobile. Um, gosh, uh, T-Mobile was was just an awesome experience for us. So just real real briefly, the T-Mobile deal was um, we are part of their Collaborate offering. And uh, they basically are reselling uh, Dialpad. You know, and they picked us because we were, they told us we we're the most innovative solution out there. Um, and, you know, they wanted someone that was modern and tech forward and just mobile first. And so we really uh, were in sync with them, like from a, from a um, style perspective, from a culture perspective, and then from a product perspective. So mm. they bring this 5G uh, high speed internet, which is enabling anyone right to work from anywhere you can take a hotspot and or you could your office could just have one of their new 5g routers and everyone's good to go and we bring the software and and that combination is is uh is pretty powerful so um i don't know did i answer your question a little bit yeah at one point i was coaching the ceo of sprint marcelo claret and i also coached his second in command jamie jones for 18 months and i found that they were that sprint was um just very big um complicated making yep. decision making. I don't know if I could have ever tried to do a business deal with them. I was only coaching them because I was friends with the CEO, but it seems like T-Mobile was different. Were they more entrepreneurial? Did they move faster? Or did they seem like a big bureaucratic place? No, the T-Mobile definitely is more entrepreneurial and, and they move, they move pretty quick. Um, we, we've, we've been really happy with them as a, as a partner. I, I got to tell you, like their launch for, um, which was a couple of weeks ago for, for T-Mobile, mm-hmm. um, Labrate and, and a bunch of other things was like one of the best launches I've ever seen in my life. And that includes, you know, the four years I spent at the Clorox company where all we did was brand launch. Right. Like they, they did really an amazing job all the way down to like the little logos on their blazers. It was, it was, um, I, I think it's been the stigma of like big companies being slow or, um, um, 
late. Like, I don't think that's, that's necessarily true. Like they are a bigger company. Like we probably, they don't move as fast as a startup can, but they, they move and um, they've been good partners. I think that's why they won. All right, let's go back. Final question. If I want to go back to when you were kind of the 21, 22 year old, maybe graduating college, what advice would you give yourself back then? Oh, okay. Here's what, here's the number one thing. And this goes back to my spreadsheet thing. If you have a goal in life, then you will actually work toward it. But if you don't have a goal, then you will just sort of waffle through day to day, right? And you you won't really know. And um, and I say this because I I made a spreadsheet a long time ago, and this is going to sound really probably um, maybe too 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 detail oriented, but this is the kind of guy I am. I made a spreadsheet. I said, look, one day I want to have a family. I want to have kids. I'd like to pay for their college. I'd like to retire at this age. And I used all the Excel skills at the time that I'd accumulated. And I just coded this thing and I was super excited about it. And I figured out that like, I wasn't going to get to this point by this age, if I didn't make some changes in my life. Mm. And for me, that was an inflection point was like, I don't like, you don't need to build a spreadsheet. Like you don't, that's not how everyone's wired, but you need to know if you can get there on the current path that you're on. And if you can't get there, then either you've got to be okay with that, which I don't think most people are, or you got to, you got to be willing to say, okay, I'm going to do something different. Right. And I'm going to, I'm going to try to make some changes. And, and that could be, um, it could be a career change. It could be um, learning a new skill. It could be uh, going back to school. It could, it could be any number of things like try working harder to get the next promotion, like whatever it is, that you need at that time. And if you can just get yourself like a little forward every day, like a little incremental progress, that compound effect over 20, 30 years is huge. And um, I promise you, if you can just do that, just do a little bit every day and try to get to this goal that you set, like you'll, you'll be happy with wherever you end up. Yep. I, I, you, may, you may beat your goal. I think, I think that's the key is the incremental progress every day and, you know, driving towards that goal. Right. Cause if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. That's right. Jason Yang, the COO for Dialpad. Thanks very much for sharing with us today on the second command podcast. Really appreciate the time. Cameron, it was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Awesome. You've been listening to second in command brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.